Welcome to episode 40, and I'm your host, Yuri Brito, once again, and I'm back with my friend Dustin Master. Dustin, how are you, brother? I'm doing well, Yuri. How are you? Fantastic. 40 episodes. What do you think about that? Oh, man. We should have, like, applause or something. Not <laughs> <laughs> a laugh track, like an applause track. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, welcome back, and I am always delighted to have you talk about uh, important topics. I want to talk about vocation today, Dustin. You published an article recently at the Theopolis Institute, our dear friends at Theopolis, led by uh, Dr. Peter Lightheart, the president. And you published an, an article recently that I want to talk about. But let me just begin with a, a quick story. I was at a Bible Presbyterian college where I graduated from. And during chapel services, there were always these calls, or we might even say invitations to embrace full-time ministry. And full-time ministry was seen to be a different kind of ministry than secular ministry. And so to be in full-time ministry was a great honor, and very boldly, they would say, an even greater honor than secular ministry. Now, people had to do secular ministry. Somebody had to take the trash out. But it wasn't as noble as full-time ministry, which they meant any kind of work related to the church. And that story, I think, brings us to our conversation today, which is specifically the topic of vocation. So you wrote this article. Uh, Set the stage for this article. What led you to write it? What's the context of it? Yeah, well, uh, I lead college and young adult ministry at uh, at our church, and so I was given. A, I gave a lecture on vocation, and pretty well. the The manuscript for the lecture is what made its way into the article. And I'll just tell you, you know, working, and I also teach high school, and we're working with students who are Christian and who genuinely want to find a way to serve God. Um, the issue of vocation just inevitably comes up, and as you allude to. It often sounds like I either am going to serve the Lord in full-time vocational ministry, then I'm going to do it with my whole life, or I'll serve God um, on Sundays as an elder or a deacon, or I'll you know teach BSF or something like that, and right, right, give some sort of uh, spare time to serving the Lord. And a big heart of my personal. Uh, ministry has been helping people see that, no, you can serve the Lord full-time. And in fact, you're called to serve the Lord full-time uh, in in your whole life, both work and rest. And so that was what sort of led to uh, my thoughts behind the article and the sort of publication of the article as well. So the, the, the beginning of the article, you talk about a recent episode that took place uh, at least maybe a couple months ago, I think, which was the viral picture of a man working at Trader Joe's. Who was that man? Do you remember? Yeah, I forget his name, but he was uh, he had sort of a leading role uh, on the Cosby show. And, uh, it was Jeffrey and- Owens, right? Yeah, that's right. Jeffrey Owens. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so the picture kind of got passed around. Apparently, like a lot of people sort of making fun of him and his career and so forth, um, which you know, you just know his agent and manager loved it because I think it ended with uh, Tyler Perry gave him a, uh, a role on a show because of all of this publicity. So I'm sure. That's right. There was a happy ending there. Yeah, I'm sure there was a happy ending. But uh, it, it led to him giving an interview on Good Morning America. And I thought he just did a very um, compelling just 
profound interview in which he said, no job is better than any other. And then he backed up and he said, of course, some jobs get paid better. Some jobs are better on resume. Some jobs are better suited for certain people. Uh, But in principle, all jobs have value and dignity. And when I heard that, I had two thoughts. One, it's 100% true. I agree with that. I wish more people thought that. And then two, uh, that's not something that's just sort of self-evidently true. In other words, that conclusion has a lot of uh, background work going on, a lot of presuppositions. And uh, it seems like it just behooves those of us who are Christians particularly to open the hood and look at that background, uh, that background work and say, what is it that leads to the, what is true of the world that leads us to say all work has dignity? Well, and, and anyone familiar with uh, Reformation history will remember, and I think you mentioned this in the article too, the uh, comment by Martin Luther, who said that the milkmaid's milking was a service to God, just as the preacher's preaching was a service to God. So there's a an equality of nobility and value and worth that exists in all kinds of work, whether it be within the ecclesia or outside the church itself. But Dustin, apart from, as you said, it's not a self-evident truth per se, because anybody who sees the glamour of Hollywood will say, my goodness, this produces a certain kind of aesthetic beauty that you don't see in a man who is milking the cow. So where do we go to sort of find a framework to begin this conversation? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you where most people go. I've read, you know, well over a dozen books on a Christian view of vocation. And most folks start in Genesis three, or at least after Genesis three, um, which seems to me sort of sets up, it stacks the deck, uh, stack, uh, stacks the deck against um, a really robust creational view of vocation for the following reason. If you start with the fall and sort of explaining what's wrong with work, you can do that. But it can lead people to believe that work is, if not a necessary evil, um maybe just a necessary temporal good that we have to do now, but that one day it will be taken away from us. And so what I wanted to do in the article was say, let's go back before the Reformation, as much as a reformational view of vocation has influenced me, um, before the New Testament, as much as, you know, Paul particularly has a lot of things to say that will influence our view of vocation and go even before Genesis 3, go to Genesis 1 and ground our view of vocation in the creation of the world. And by doing that, what I wanted to do was say, look, uh, work, vocation, yes, it's fallen, uh, but it isn't inherently fallen. In other words, it's uh, the, the thorns in work, the pain in work uh, is like rust on a ship. And you can take the rust away from the ship and the ship still stands. And there was a time when the thorn and pain of work was taken away and work was still there. And it's my contention that in the new heavens and the new earth, um, we we will have work again and that pain and that agony will be taken away. And so Christianity, you know, has uh, just a powerful explanatory import that, yes, it explains what's wrong with the world. And oftentimes Christian apologetics is focused on that, you know, the problem of evil here. We have an explanation for why everything is painful and and broken, and that's true and good. But it also has a powerful uh, explanation 
to what's right with the world. In other words, we can say to people who find immense dignity in being an architect, a street sweeper, whatever it is, and they say, I find meaning and, and dignity in this. We can come, we can say, well, we have a reason why. And it goes back to Genesis 1 and that God is ruling over all of creation and he's ruling through us, through mortal, uh, through mortal humans. And uh, God's mission involves all of creation and, um, and he has chosen, you know, he doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. And so what you do has real dignity and meaning and value, but we only get there if we back up from Genesis three, start at Genesis one, and then bring in Genesis three uh, later to explain the problems in work. I wonder if this misunderstanding of vocation beginning, if, if beginning in Genesis three leads to a further misinformation, misunderstanding of vocation, because um, if if we if we begin assuming that vocation itself has a fallen component. I think ultimately what it will do is it will internalize vocation. In other words, you will miss that there is an Edenic nature to vocation, that vocation can be, in fact, it was intended to be pure and holy before God, and that the fall doesn't undo that pattern, but the fall complicates it, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So our good friend, Abraham Kuyper, whom we love, he argues in one of his writings, I can't remember specifically, that the church hasn't been established only to um, to serve its own internal politics or you know, the growth strategies, but that the church itself serves to embody Christ uh, in the world so that the world might see the flourishing of the Christian message. Is there a great problem you've seen in your experience, Dustin, when theological paradigms internalize vocation to only church work. What's been sort of the consequence of that mentality? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it does it. Um, and and yet we still work, right? I mean, it's, you know, one of the kind of ironies is when you make Christian work um, of a different species than any, than regular sort of work, you know, if you make uh, full-time vocational ministry, um, sort of on a higher paradigm. It's not that, okay, everybody goes into pastoral ministry, maybe in a very robustly Christian culture, uh, you can dissuade folks from going into, uh, from going into, to being a doctor, a lawyer into ministry. But for the most part, people, we still need street sweepers. We still need doctors. We still need teachers and so forth. So what you do is um, you secularize the good, sacred world uh, of, of God, and you leave people um, either one, feeling hopeless and meaningless in their everyday work, or two, finding meaning and identity and value in their work, but they don't see its relation to God's sovereignty and his lordship over creation. And then, as you know, I mean, that's what uh, idolatry is, is when a sign is turned into an end in itself and work, um, there is value and dignity and meaning in it. It is good. And if we disconnect um, the Lord, the creator from his creation, from this sort of creational ordinance of work, um, either we will leave people feeling meaningless or hopeless or we'll make work penultimate. And people will just, you know, uh, seek 
the the gifts of God without the person of God and make work into an idol. Um, and so it's just incumbent upon us to explain and see the connection between, you know, God resting on the seventh day. N.T. Wright says, you know, when, uh, when we see God rest on the seventh day, that it's not just God's tired and needs to take a nap. Right. That it's something like saying after an election, you know, President Trump uh, rests in the White House after the election. It's a way of saying like takes the, you know, he built this. Uh, and now he's taking the command center. Um, and so how does God resting on the seventh day influence um, our, you know, uh, Monday to Saturday um, is a huge question. And the results of not answering that question correctly or not asking the question in the first place are huge, it seems to me. I, I agree. I agree completely. Another great theme I think the Reformation brought, which I think can be easily misunderstood, but that's a for another episode is the conversation about the priesthood of all believers, because I think that too has an effect, a relationship to the doctrine of vocation. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, in the tradition I'm in, uh, sometimes you'll call uh, a pastor a vicar. Um, they're doing something because vicarious, in other words, Christ is doing something vicariously through them. They're supposed to be his instruments. Um, and in that way, uh, we are all vicars. We're all here to do something on behalf of God. We're ambassadors, we're priests, we're, uh, we are agents of a kingdom. And, um, and one of the points I made in, in, in the piece is that, um, just as Eden is a temple, which has been so beautifully demonstrated by, you know, GK Beale and, uh, many others, uh, Eden is a sort of temple. His work is a sort of holy work, set aside, consecrated work. And Adam is a sort of priest. Now, why is he a priest? Because God wants something done and he calls someone to do that thing. And the, you say the, the misunderstandings of the Reformation. I mean, one of the misunderstandings is sort of reading back on the magisterial reformers, a very Anabaptist theology that says, well, what they're trying to do is secularize or despiritualize the sacred, the religious. In other words, you know, make the sacraments a very memorial view and and that kind of thing. But to the contrary, when you read uh, Calvin and Luther particularly, it's not that they're trying to demystify the the sacred; it's they're trying to remystify the secular. What we think of as the secular, they're trying to say, no, the whole of life is uh, is this holy calling. So once we see the whole of life is a holy calling and the priesthood of believers, we are priests and vicars working in the world, then we say, okay, there, you know, in a worship service, the pastor should administer the sacraments in a certain way. He should, you know, keep out strange fire or whatever. I mean, there's there are certain things that the minister should do in a worship service. Well, in the same way, uh, God's ordinances aren't just, as James Skillen says, we're not just supposed to ride through history pro- proclaiming God's ordinances, his laws exist. No, we're supposed to implement those. We're supposed to act upon those. We're supposed to, if you will, have like a regulative principle of worship in life, <laughs> be regulated by God's word as vicars and priests in law, in teaching, uh, in in every domain, we're supposed to see ourselves as under the ultimate lordship 
of Christ, looking to his word and implementing his, his mission. And so often, you know, we'll just see Christ's mission as contained within the walls of the church. And when we do that, of course, there's only one sort of priest. But if you can see God's mission as all-encompassing, as him eradicating the curse uh, or bringing redemption as far as the curse is found, then, of course, he will need priests of every sort. Of course, he will need missionaries of every sort in every area of life. Why? Because his mission is bigger than the church building. It's bigger than the church. It encompasses, as you referenced with that Kuiper quote, uh, it encompasses all of creation. So, therefore, we're all priests. One of the great themes that uh, Peter Lightheart discusses in his uh, Old Testament overview, A House for My Name, is that indeed God is building a house on earth, a house made for his glory, a house filled with worshipers. And not all of us can have the same job in this house. And so do we spread our labors across? That's the only way we can have a productive house with a productive land producing beautiful fruit for the world to taste and see the goodness of God. And I think, you know, I think as as you and I who our work in the church and work in academia, we have an opportunity to interact with a, a group of people at a coffee job, at a conference. And I do sense overall, there is a high level of discontent with people when it comes to their jobs, their professions. I think a lot of folks, um, you know, if you ask the question, you know, how's work, they'll say, well, it's just a job. And I think that sort of reveals a profound misunderstanding of the intention that God had when he created the world. Um, I think that is, a, in many ways, an attempt to live in Genesis 3 rather than living in Genesis 1 and 2. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, very well said. Um, I, I see that a lot. And I see it in myself sometimes, too, you know, when you're uh, doing a job and you sort of just feel like, well, I have to get this. You know, I have to get this done. And, and, it, and it, you know, should probably be said, too, that um, our argument is that every job sort of objectively is, does contain dignity. It is part of God's mission. Insofar as our friend Lisa Robinson, who we had on uh, a few weeks ago, she kindly pointed out in, in response to the piece I, that I should have said, and she's exactly right, every job that isn't contingent upon sin, right? Yeah, so it's, fine distinction, yeah. good distinction. It is a good distinction, yeah. It's not that I think a drug dealer's, oh, you right. know, or an IRS worker or something. No, I kid, I kid. Um, but uh, <laughs> every, job, every job, I have to wait for the laugh. We have to get a laugh. <laughs> Took me a second there. I got you. <laughs> uh, every every job objectively has dignity and value and worth and so forth. However, um, not every person is suited to every job. You know, and so it could be the case that the person who feels dissatisfied at their job uh, doesn't have this biblical full orbed view of God's mission and their role within that mission. And, you know, they can sort of reevaluate that. And, and perhaps that would help. Help. It could also be the case that their particular gifts um, are not particularly suited to the particular job they have. And it just isn't their calling. You know, I, uh, um, I am not called to be a ballerina and for all sorts <laughs> of reasons, I, if I tried to be a ballerina, I would just utterly fail at that. Right. That's not, 
my calling. And so I think there's both an objective and a subjective component. And that's, you know, I kind of want to turn the tables on you a little bit here and say, as a pastor, as you help navigate people, disciple them in terms of their vocation, I would love to hear how you do that. Both navigate them objectively, teaching them sort of the doctrine of vocation, but then existentially as a pastor and a shepherd, you're also trying to help people, guide people into, you know, a good fit, um, into sort of a healthy work uh, work rest balance. How do you kind of navigate discipling folks uh, in terms of their vocation? Well, a couple things. You know, first and foremost, I think from now on, I want to give Dustin Messer's article objectively to these folks. They can get a good sense of uh, the foundation of what vocation is biblically and historically. But I, I do think that you do need to repeat these themes again and again. I and mean, it takes a little while for folks to get a sense of why their job is actually noble. I mean, people struggle day to day. They are thinking about paying bills. It's very hard to stop and think what I do when I wake up in the morning, the location I'm about to drive to, I'm entering a noble job. It's hard for folks to grasp themselves around that idea because I don't think they look at the mundane as noble and God looks nobly at the mundane. And so I think that's one thing we need to communicate. I try to communicate to my folks. And I think the, the other dimension of it, too, and just as a side note here, is that I, over the years, because I've been in theological circles for a while, I have found that certain men, they have theological desires. And so they think that ultimately those desires need to be fulfilled in some kind of church work, maybe pulpit work, perhaps, when the reality is their personalities are not fitting for shepherding labors. And what they ought to do is to be intelligent and theologically minded businessmen or software engineers, which are fields that they probably are more are more skilled in, um, you know, technically. And so I think there is a disconnect in parishioners where they think that because they have theological interest, they have to be working towards, you know, theological training, when in many ways they could receive that theological training informally at home and continue to fulfill their noble jobs wherever they work. And I think that's that's important to communicate. And subjectively, I, the part where I think is where I, it's my, where my heart is very much at these days is to stress this uh, fundamental importance of the fourth commandment in the life of our vocation. I think there is a, a, a misunderstanding of how God created the world, as you've elaborated, and also that <clears throat> the fulfillment of our vocation is in the rest that God provides for his people. And so Americans work, 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 and they don't know how to rest. So they find fulfillment in their work, and the reality of vocation is that vocation is fulfilled in rest. If you take the rest out of vocation, vocation is not fulfilled. And so out of the six days, there is a seventh. That's the creation week. And so trying to instill that mentality that you can be both a gifted baseball coach and find fulfillment in that, but also resting from your labors and delving perhaps into theological subjects that you're interested in and have been interested in for a long time, these come together. They don't have to be apart. And at the same time, realizing that you can be a 
faithful theological student as a software engineer without wanting to pursue. And what I've seen over the years, especially when I was in seminary, is you see these men who have had 20 years of business work. And it's true that God may be calling them to do that kind of work, to pursue ministry, a change of direction, right? Uh, but as you spend time with them, you realize that as you look down the road now on their Facebook status, you know, 10 years down the road, they're back to business. And so they tried two or three years in pastoral ministry, didn't work out. Well, an objective analysis would have told them early on that uh, the theological training was helpful, but perhaps so that they could be more efficient software engineers. Anyway, I think that's the beginning of a larger conversation. But some of the things that I think ought to be stressed uh, as a pastor to their parishioner, that sometimes is not stressed. Absolutely. I just, I don't know that I completely agree with this or have thought of all the implications of it, but uh, a friend recently shared with me they're reading uh, Doya Verd. Um, and Doya Verd was already a philosopher uh, at his Christian studies in Toronto. And Doya Verd said, uh, he says, theology is not the queen of the sciences. He said, when you have a king, there is no queen. And he, there is no need of a queen or something. And his point was this. He said, all reality, it, in other words, nature is just as infallible as scripture. Now, you can misread nature. You can misread scripture. But that uh, the study of theology is noble and valuable. But so is the study of philosophy. So is the study of the natural sciences. And I don't. I still want to say theology is the queen of the sciences because, you know, I've given my life to the study of it. But there is an, a, a profound point in there, which is that we need really intelligent, thoughtful Christians in every sphere, not just as students of theology, but as teachers. I just, uh, I don't know if you listened to, speaking of the Theopolis Institute, but Jerry Bauer just did a podcast for Theopolis uh, in which Peter Lightheart, he's an economist, was asking him questions, questions about uh, the economy. And uh, Jerry is an extremely thoughtful Christian, extremely uh, well-educated, uh, I would say theologian, but he's a professional economist. And all I could think when I was listening to that interview is I could not answer, you know, the vast majority of these questions. I just don't have the expertise. I don't have the, the background or skill set in economics to answer these questions. But here's someone in Jerry Bauer, extremely thoughtful, extremely uh, theologically well spoken and trained, able to bring the rule of Christ in this field that I wouldn't be able to. And what a loss to the kingdom it would have been if he had have you know decided to be a pastor. Precisely, <laughs> because that's exactly right. Yeah. So God's working through that, and I think that's a really wise uh, wise counsel to not just hoard theology to one place, the church, but to spread it out like salt. And, you know, I think there's a Bible verse that says something like that, right? <laughs> absolutely. <About salt. laughs> you're absolutely right. So Dustin, you have uh, a young man you're mentoring perhaps there at uh, a school or a church, and he's wondering about how to find his vocation. Where do you go? How do you, how do you begin to point him the right direction? Yeah, uh, I just read um, Steve Garber has a wonderful book on vocation called, um, I forget what it's called. Anyways, if you Google Make sure to link it in our uh, post-interview. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anyways, I just read uh, an essay he wrote that hasn't been published yet. And he says, uh, he says, before we work, we weep. Mm -hmm. And here's what he means. 
here's what he means by that. He says, before you do something productive, you have to rightly mourn over the problem that caused it. And so the first thing I would say to him is what pain, what um, brokenness, what fallenness, what rebellion do you see in, in the world uh, that just naturally causes you grief? Because there are some, you know, it has to do with personality, it has to do with just psychology, background. We are more predisposed to see one need over another. And I think that's a great entryway into uh, into your calling. So that's the first thing I would say is what, where do you see brokenness and pain in the world? And then what skill sets do you have to meet the brokenness and the pain? In other words, I can see a medical problem, but because I'm not a physician, I'm not likely to be able to, to shed much light on that medical problem. Right? So I have to say, what skill set do I have? And Frederick Buechner has that great line, you know, your vocation is where the world's deep need and your deep gladness meet. Mm, I like that. In other words, where you're in. Yeah. So I think that's where I would go. I think that's where I would go. In addition to the objective sort of here, the biblical principles of vocation uh, in terms of, as you were saying, the existential personal uh, side, I would say, where do you see a need? Where do you weep? And then how can you work? Well, in the pastoral ministry, you know, John Murray's book on call uh, doesn't focus that specific. I, I really appreciate that sort of psychological dimension there about finding the needs that the world has and where you can fit most clearly. But in John Murray's book, he talks about the internal and external call of a minister. And I think a lot of people may have this internal sense that they ought to be doing something, but they don't have an external affirmation. So if I were, again, an 18-year-old kid uh, on a college campus, uh, felt called to do something specifically, the next thing I'd want to do is I'd want to find wisdom from leaders in my community. Should I pursue this field or not? Do you see my personality, my characteristics fitting this particular profession, this particular vocation? Because your internal direction can very easily misguide you, as it has historically and certainly can in our day. And I think it's very important that the community comes alongside and uh, at least metaphorically places their hands on you and says, yes, you are called to this field. We typically only focus on that when it comes to pastoral calling, but I think there ought to be this also communal affirmation when it comes to other callings, other vocations. Um, I think yeah. that's very crucial. Absolutely. Dustin, the title of your article found at the Theopolis Institute, and we'll probably have it at Kyperion very soon. It's called Sacred Work in a Secular World, published just um, a couple weeks ago. And I think very much worth the time of our listener to take a peek at it and spend a few minutes reading it. Dustin, thanks for uh, joining us for this 40th episode. And may we have another 40 episodes ahead of us. I always learn something when I talk to you. Thanks, man. Oh, likewise. Appreciate it.